0: Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtualmainstage.
1: Welcome to The Moth Podcast. I'm your host this week, Sarah Austin Janess, filling in for our usual podcast hosts. I'm recording this while we're all social distancing, and I'm in a closet in my father's house on Long Island. It's pouring rain, and the dog is barking in the other room, so if you hear any background noise, forgive us. Stay strong out there. We are all doing our best. Okay, we have three stories for you in this episode all about a moment of truth. We're talking epiphanies, breaking points, and big-time decisions. First up, Tim Summers. Tim told the story at a Pittsburgh Story Slam, where the theme of the night was fresh. Here's Tim, live at The Moth.
2: I was a horrible, raging alcoholic for 25 years. Here's the thing about being a drunk or really any kind of addict for that long. The longer you go on, the less you have the loo- to lose and the more you just say to yourself, why quit now? I've already lost everything. I lost girlfriends, a wife, a house, uh, jobs, money, self-respect. They say that the only way that you can quit is for yourself. I don't know about that. I quit for a girl. or. At least I quit when it became clear that I had one thing in my life that was worth quitting for and that was Stacy. Uh, We had dated all through college and we broke up the last day of college and we got back together 25 years later and it wasn't just being with her but it was also that she was with me before everything went wrong and it felt like it was another chance to be the person I was back then before everything went wrong. I got sober on October 21st, 2013. For the first... Uh... For the first year, I was sober. I was, I was sober, but I, I wasn't drunk, but I wasn't really sober yet. And for the second year, I was finally starting to be clear. And during the third year, I started to ask myself what I was going to do with the rest of my life that I had left. Uh, You see, I hadn't had a job since 2011 when I was in a horrific car accident. This is how horrific the car accident was. At the scene of the car accident, during the two hours that it took to cut me out of the car, I passed my cell phone to a fireman and asked him to call my mom, and I could hear him on the phone saying, I'm really sorry, ma'am, but I don't think he's gonna make it. So I asked for my phone back. this is how this is how much of a drunk i was at the time when i woke up in the smoking wreckage of my car my very first thought is is there any way i can make it back to st louis before the liquor stores close so anyway i was trying to think about you know what to do what to how to get a fresh start and i thought the one thing that i used to like to do was to teach Uh, a long long time ago i had been a philosophy professor and i got a tenure track job at louisiana state which I lost because of my drinking. But even after that, I did a bunch of adjunct teaching, but it had been a long time and I still only had a master's degree, so I was gonna need help. So I called my old dissertation advisor at Brown. Let's call him Dave, because that's his name. (laughs) And I said, you know, would you like me a letter of recommendation to do some teaching or whatever? And we started talking and after a while he said, what do you really wanna do? And I said, I really wanna come back to Brown and finish my PhD. And the weird thing is, I hadn't had that thought in my mind. It just popped out of nowhere. And he said, look, let's do that then. So he took it to the department, and the department voted to let me come back. And he went to the dean, and the dean had his doubts. So he said, do the application, get some letters of recommendations." I took the GRE over again, almost 30 years to the day after the first time I took the GRE. So he took that all to the dean, and the dean said, no, he can't come back. So I thought, I wasn't that hurt. I wasn't that upset. So I tried, right? But Dave said, look, work with me for a year. Study, research, write. There's going to be a new dean next year. Let's try it then and we'll have a better case. <laughs> so I did that. I worked for a whole year. I wrote over 40,000 uh, words. It was the length of a short novel, right? I got new letters of reputation. I went through the whole thing again. My, uh, Dave went to the new dean, and the new dean said, no, he can't come back. He didn't look at the letters and recommendations. He didn't read the paper. He just said, no, he can't come back. It's been too long. And this time I was really crushed. I mean, it was like a blow to the stomach. I was so upset because I had thought, I'm not even sure I'm really going to do it. If they ask me to come back, maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't come back. But now I was crushed. And I was trying to think about why. And it took me almost two weeks to realize why. And that felt almost as bad as the bad news. Because I realized that I wanted to come back because I thought if I went back to graduate school and I started over where I left off, that it would be like none of that other stuff had ever happened. That like the whole 25 years, then I'd get it back. You know, I started drinking in my early 20s and I stopped drinking when I was almost 50. That's 25 years. It's like I went to sleep and woke up 50 years old. I mean, it's a lot of time to lose, it's a, it's a bitter fucking pill to swallow. When I first got sober, this guy Crispy said to me, if you want to stay sober, Tim, you have to stop sitting around trying to have a better past. Now, first of all, if you're taking advice from a guy named Crispy. (laughs) (laughs) But second of all, I hadn't even managed to take Crispy's advice because here I was, still thinking I could just have it all back. But then something unbelievable happened. When I had been preparing to try and get back into Brown, David said, why don't you apply a few other places? And I really wasn't into it, but I did it and blah, blah, blah. And I got an offer from the University of Iowa to come there to study next year with full support, even uh, student health care. I might be the first person ever to go straight from student health care to Medicare. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Brown. But Brown just felt like an attempt to relive the same thing, and this feels like a fresh start. So I'm going to Iowa next week. I don't know if I'm going to go there next year, but hopefully. Thank you.
1: That was Tim Summers. Tim has told over 45 stories at Moth Slams. He writes a monthly column for Three Quarks Daily, and he's finishing a novel called Call Me Max, which is a comedy about the devil. He was also Prince's bodyguard for one night. Just after Tim told this story, he accepted the offer of admission to the PhD program in philosophy at the University of Iowa. But most importantly, he says, he married Stacy, the girl who saved his life. To see photos of Tim at school and on his wedding day, head to our website, themoth.org. Emma Becker told our next story at a moth slam in Atlanta where the theme of the night was intentions. Here's Emma.
0: Okay. Um, I was sitting at a plastic table in a plastic chair on one of those heinously overcrowded cruise ships. Uh, in an open air atrium, and the boat was somewhere between Vancouver and Alaska, and I myself was floating somewhere between the ninth and 10th grade. Uh, It was summer, and my family was on vacation, and I was taking a much needed moment of solitude in my plastic haven. And um, as is fairly typical for my family vacations, that solitude was interrupted pretty quickly. What was weird was that it was someone I didn't know. It was an old man, uh, at least in his late 70s, and his body looked lived in, and his, his Hawaiian shirt was like, oh man, like hanging off his shoulders, but his eyes were like this blue color, and they were sparkling, and he was smiling at me, and he said, um, excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that you were writing a letter, and I never see young people writing letters these days, and Could you just tell me, is it a love letter? (laughs) And um, like I wanted to tell him the truth. I fully intended to, and the truth was like, uh, no. (laughs) My friend Vivian moved to Minnesota. Now we write each other. It's like a whole thing. It's how we talk to each other. But when I opened my mouth to tell him that, he was just like looking at me, and he looked so hopeful. And what came out of my mouth was yes. I am writing a love letter like you caught me <laughs> and uh, he, he smiled at me um, and he nodded and he walked away and as is the case with heinously large cruise ships I literally never saw him again um, but I did go back to the paper in my hands and I finished my letter by by telling Vivian about this man and how I'd lied to him and how it had probably made his day <laughs> um, and our, our cruise went on. We made port in Alaska in an incredibly tiny town. And I went to its incredibly tiny post office and I mailed my letter south to Minnesota. And by the time Vivian had received it and responded and sent it back off, I was home in Massachusetts. Um, I started checking the mailbox for that letter like probably four days before it could have reasonably arrived. Uh, I sincerely hope that all of you have had the experience of getting like a proper letter, not a billing statement or a Christmas card, <laughs> but like like a letter for you because it's the best feeling in the world and I, I loved getting letters from Vivian because uh, I thought she wrote about her life in the best way possible. Uh, she was interesting and she was a photographer and sometimes she'd send me her pictures and she hated the suburbs that she was in. They were inexplicably worse than the one she'd left me in and um, she hated Minnesota, she called the lake's lesions (laughs) and um, that letter arrived and I walked up back up the driveway like I was flying and I read it and it was exactly what you would expect someone between the summer of ninth and 10th grade to write it was a lot about her life and um, at the end she said this she said and Emma about what you told that man on the boat that you were writing a letter a love letter um, I don't think that's a stretch at all because that's exactly what I feel when I get these letters from you. It's love. This was way before I ever came out to myself and it was like even longer before I came out to anybody else. Um, I was in like my success stage where there were women in my life that I deeply wanted to do the best in everything they ever wanted to do in their lives. I just, I wanted them to succeed. And um, uh, now, and later, I guess, being able to look back on that correspondence, I can look at those letters and see that um, we loved each other without knowing it and in a way that I think of as like sincerely endemic to the suburbs and to youth. And it was like a love that was uh, without ambition or outcome. And by the time either of us could have possibly acknowledged that it was happening, it was like, past the moment where it would have mattered and been actionable and just like into this moment of like once love that um, we like really happily resided in for another five or six years. We stopped being pen pals in senior year of college. um, And that was okay. And when I think back on that, that written relationship and the way that it existed in my life, I think what I'm most grateful for is um, that old man and his (laughs) sparkling eyes. Um, And his question that I would have never asked myself in that moment, and um, it gave me one chance in the time that I was writing those letters to say exactly what I intended to be putting into them, which was love.
1: Emma Becker is a Massachusetts transplant who's currently living in Atlanta and working for an e-commerce company. A true progeny of the liberal arts and a new fan of the fried green tomato, she fills her free time with good books and farmer's markets. Emma is still pen pals with some of the friends she's met in her travels over the years. She says, quote, I'm still a firm believer in the letter as a form of communication. It's a unique opportunity to say everything you want to say exactly as you want to say it. To see photos from Emma's trip to Alaska and some of the letters she mentioned in her story, check out our website, themoth.org. Our last storyteller in this episode, all about moments of truth, is Kathleen Sheffer. She told this at a story slam in San Francisco, where the theme of the night was do-over. Here's Kathleen, live at The Moth.
3: Last May, I was sitting in Union Square talking to my friend Austin, um, and I was telling him that I would never get a heart-lung transplant. Um, It was a treatment option for the disease that I had, pulmonary hypertension. um, But it was so unappealing because I would have my immune system would be compromised for the rest of my life. I'd take a lot of medication. I'd have to wear a mask in crowds um, i had friends who had gotten transplants before um, some of them were doing well some of them weren't the survival statistics weren't that great and i was 23. Um, a few days later i got on a plane and flew to seattle uh, for a photography job but i never made it to the job because i woke up in my friend's apartment and I was wheezing, I couldn't catch my breath, I was coughing up blood on, the, like, in her toilet. Um, so, I she called 911, I got in an ambulance, I called my parents, um, I texted my sister to, to tell her that I loved her because I didn't know if I would be alive when she read that text. Um, so when my doctors at Stanford called me in Seattle and said, that it was time to be listed for a transplant, it sounded like a pretty good option. Um, I couldn't walk around a block on four liters of oxygen. Um, And so I was listed at Stanford, and usually um, once you go active on the list, you wait for a year, three years. I had friends who are still waiting for transplants. I waited 28 days, and then I got a call at 7.50 a.m. I was woken up and uh, went through a checklist with a Stanford employee who sounded more nervous than I do now. Um, no, I didn't have a cold. No, I hadn't received any recent blood transfusions. Um, I could be at the hospital in two hours. So we threw our, my parents and my sister and I threw stuff in bags and uh, got in the car, drove to Stanford. Um, we got there at 10 a.m. and they said that my surgery was scheduled for noon that afternoon, so we thought, okay, this is happening. Um, but I didn't go downstairs, I didn't get wheeled to the operating room for until 8 p.m., so there was plenty of time for friends and family to arrive, for my dad to do the last IV medication pump change, um, and for us to spend a lot of time thinking about the people who were grieving while we were celebrating my new chance uh, at life. Um, when, by the time I went down to, downstairs, uh, I had 10 people to say goodbye to. We were walking in a parade of my my hospital bed. Um, and then my parents waited outside the operating room doors with me and, um, I chose that time to go over my last wishes with my mom, um, to give her my social media passwords, and (laughs) uh, (laughs) it's important, OK, and discuss where donations should be sent in the event of my death, um, Like how they should have a party instead of a funeral, just normal things you talk about with your 23-year-old daughter. In the operating room, I ended up waiting two hours because the organs were stuck in traffic. So the anesthesiologist asked me what kind of music I wanted to listen to. Um, So I should also say, my heart rate was normally about 60 beats per minute. Um, That day, it was 130 beats per minute and I could not calm down. Um, So I was like trying to do some drawings to calm myself. And um, I don't trust myself to choose the the playlist for a party at my house. So choosing the Pandora station for a room full of people tasked with keeping me alive for the next few hours was a whole new level of terrifying. (laughs) And it might be the last thing that I listened to. So it's stressful. Um, Heart rate probably went up. but I chose Blind Pilot, and the only complaints coming from the room were about the anesthesiologist's lack of a paid subscription. We listened, <laughs> we listened to ads <laughs> between songs. Um, then um, around 10 at night, they had visualized the organs. The surgeon said it was a go. They called my parents and said they were putting me under. Um, At that point, I was really only concerned for the people in the waiting room, because I knew that my body would fight for me. I'd had open heart surgery as a baby, and um, I knew I I would keep going under anesthesia. Um, So, um, last week, I celebrated 200 days (laughs) post-transplant. And um, in December, I went ice skating with my friend Austin in Union Square. Um, And uh, yes, I am pretty shaky because I am taking a lot of drugs and I'm wearing a a mask. Um, But I'm really, really grateful for this second chance at life.
1: That was Kathleen Sheffer. Kathleen works as an event photographer in San Francisco, and she strives to make her subjects feel seen and loved. And since telling her story, Kathleen has actually photographed five live events for The Moth. We wanted to hear more from Kathleen about her recovery and how she's doing. Here's Kathleen reading her response.
3: In July, I will celebrate four years with a healthy heart and lungs, gifted to me by my heroic organ donor. My donor family has received my letters of gratitude, but I don't know anything about my donor. I've recovered well from one episode of acute rejection and a couple of colds. My lung function remains in the 90th percentile for my age group. For the first time in my life, I've been able to exercise. In 2018 I summited Half Dome and in 2019 I made it to the Mount Whitney Trail Camp at 12,000 feet before retreating from a hailstorm. When I had pulmonary hypertension I had to stay below 4,000 feet altitude so my world has really expanded upward. I feel beyond lucky to turn 27 this month and to be living a relatively normal life. I'm so grateful to have had a million more chances to tell my sister and my parents that I love them and to fall in love with my new partner.
1: That was Kathleen Sheffer. To see photos of the exciting days and hours before she received her new heart and lungs and to check out some of Kathleen's own photography, go to our website, themoth.org. That's all for us this week. In this time of social distancing, we hope you'll check out more of our stories on our social media, YouTube, and on our website. And parents and teachers, head to our blog for weekly storytelling lessons from our education department. We're posting a new story with a corresponding set of journal prompts, activities, and reflection questions for you and the whole family to get involved in. You can find it all at themoth.org slash dispatches every Tuesday and Friday. From all of us here at The Moth, we hope you're staying safe and healthy. Have a story-worthy week.
0: Sarah Austin-Jeunesse is The Moth's executive producer and one of the hosts of The Moth Radio Hour. Over the years, she's worked with hundreds of people to craft personal stories. She also launched The Moth's Global Community Program, which elevates stories from South Asia and Africa to highlight world issues including gender equality and public health.
1: Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme